0: good or bad. So let me get everything set up here. But I need, I want to talk to the to everyone, but I want, especially if you're under 14, 15, 16 years old, I really want you to like lock zero in on me. You got me, Katie? You got me? Yeah? Noah, you got me? Cross, you're, you're doing some weird things with your eyes there. That's cool. I can see you. All right. So I'm going to read a story, and um, yeah, we're going to do... See what we can learn as we do this. If I can pull my notes up. Ah. See? Polished. Here we go. Seamless. All right. So here we are. Here's what I need. Aha. Has anyone read this before? It's a children's Bible. Yeah? Who uses it? Raise your hand. you do it? You use it? It's Mary Sue. Who else? Raise your hand. Let me see it. You used to. You've graduated to something else or What? the big kid Bible. All right. You don't use it? All right. All right, so I've got some, oh man, this is going to be hard. I didn't practice this with all the stuff. Here we go. All right, I've got pictures for you, I think. Yes, there you go. Woo. All right, so listen up. There was once a little girl who didn't get out of bed one morning Or the next, or the next. In fact, she didn't get out of bed for a whole month. She was very sick, and no one knew how to make her better. Jairus was her daddy, and he loved her. One day he was sitting by her bed, holding her hand, wishing there was something he could... I know, he said. He jumped to his feet, put on his coat, kissed his daughter... Ran down, step, 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 steps, past the servants, out of the house, through the gates, along the road, into the town, up the step, step, steps, into the temple. He fought his way through the people until, at last, he found who he was looking for. Who do you think it is? I think you're right. Jesus, he said, falling at Jesus' feet. My daughter, he pleaded, please. But he didn't need to beg, because before he'd even finished speaking, Jesus reached out his hand and helped him up. "I'll come at once," Jesus said. Jairus' eyes filled with tears. Jesus was coming. It would be all right. And those days, of course, they didn't have ambulances, all right? So they had to go by foot. Jesus' helpers knew that he would heal the sick girl, but they must hurry. If Jesus didn't get there soon, it would be too late. But everyone was in the way, hustling and bustling, jostling and pressing, pushing and shoving, squishing and squashing. The disciples ran ahead, forcing back the crowd. Suddenly, Jesus stopped. His friends looked back. What was he doing? Who touched me? Jesus asked because he felt power go out of him. Me, said a frail lady looking down at the ground, because she was ashamed. The poor lady had been sick for 12 years, and she had to get well. She knew if she only touched Jesus' coat, she would be healed. So she touched his coat, and instantly she was well. We don't have time, Jesus' friend said, but Jesus always had time. He reached out his hands and gently lifted her head. He looked into her eyes, and he smiled. Can you imagine that? You believed, he said, wiping a tear from her eye. And now you are well. Just then Jairus' servant rushed up to Jairus. It's too late, he said breathlessly. Your daughter is dead. Jesus turned to Jairus. It's not too late. Jesus said, trust me. At Jairus' house, everyone was crying. But Jesus said, I'm going to wake her up. Everyone laughed at him because they knew she was dead. Jesus walked into the little girl's bedroom. And there, lying in the corner in the shadows, was the still little figure. Jesus sat on the bed and took her pale hand. Honey, he said. It's time to get up. I love this. He reached down into death and gently brought the little girl back to life. The little girl woke up. She rubbed her eyes as if she just had a good night's sleep and and leapt out of bed. And Jesus threw open the shutters and the sunlight flooded the dark room. Hungry? Jesus asked. She nodded. Jesus called to her family. Bring this little girl some breakfast. Jesus helped and healed many people like this. He made blind people see. He made deaf people hear. He made lame people walk. Jesus was making every sad thing come untrue. He was mending God's broken world. So God... And Jesus is making all things new. He's mending. Do you know what that word means? Mending, fixing, great. Healing, he's healing God's sick and hurting and broken world. And that's what we see in Jesus, right? That's what we see God doing in Jesus over and over and over again. He's mending and healing and fixing the world as it's gone wrong. That's the good news that Jesus brings, right? The good news of the kingdom of God is that when God is on the throne, when he's king, bad things begin to be made right. Sick people begin to be made well. And so there's one key thing about, one key word that we keep on hearing in these these stories. And I read at the beginning, we read, a version of these stories and a couple more. And then we just read this. But what is, did you hear a word? What does Jesus say the people who were healed had? Did you catch that, Summer? Trust. That's a great word and a way to say it, right? They had faith. And you can say that faith is very much like trust. Faith and trust are very much the same thing I want to bring Mike I forgot to talk to you about this but I'm going to pull you up here and let's see I'm gonna have Isaac come up all right Isaac you come up here Mike I want you to blindfold your son Isaac all right and Isaac now Isaac I need to ask you a question do you trust your dad yes good Do you think he loves you? Yes. Do you think he wants what is best for you? Yes. Do you think he would, on purpose, let anything bad or harmful happen to you? No. So, I'm going to lift, your dad's going to lift you up, and you're going to stand on this chair. (laughs) All right, stand there. Can you see anything? Okay. Now, just stand still right there. All right, now. You said you trust your dad, right? Okay. So do you trust that he'll catch you if you were to fall? All right. Now, if you fell back... Just, oh. Here, hold on. Because he's really... This is true. He's really taking care. Of. Yes. All right. So what I want you to do, because you have faith that your dad loves you, that he desires the best for you, that he would never want you, if he could help it, to be hurt, Would you just fall back? Yes, good job. Give me my hand. All right. All right. Good job. Thank you. Good job. Way to be brave, brother. And way to be a good dad. Isaac, what you didn't see is that when at first, because I'm not your dad, you would have hit your head on that, but your dad saw it because he loves you. This is what faith looks like. Sometimes, guys, we can't see what's happening. We can't see God. We can't see uh, God in our life. We, we, and things are going really badly, right? Really poorly, really hard things happen. And we can start to doubt. Is God there? Like, I feel scared. I feel like I'm on the edge of a cliff. I feel like I can't see. And if I fell, I would just keep falling and I would be hurt. But what Matthew in these, in these stories, these episodes that he shows of Jesus' life, and what, what we are supposed to learn about God as we look at Jesus is that we see that we are never alone, and that God is with us and for us always. And so what we are supposed to learn from these stories, these, these episodes, these true stories in Jesus' life, is that God loves us and that we can trust him. Because you know what? We saw how good a dad Mike is, right? But you know what? God is a way better dad than Mike. Because I know you know, and those of you who live in his house, probably, he gets angry sometimes, right? Probably. Even without cause, yeah? Sometimes he flips his lid, Right? If that, if that makes any sense. Right. Sometimes he does hurt you unintentionally. Even though that's not his heart desire, he might hurt, it, hurt your feelings. He might say something that he shouldn't say. And he has to ask your forgiveness. But God, in Jesus, we see that he's never like that. That God, as we sang, he doesn't make mistakes. He's with us. He loves us. He's for us. He's never against us. He's there to catch us. And that's what these people, that this woman who was sick for 12 years, this is what she believed. She said, if I just touch the hem of his garment, right? If I just touch it, I'll be healed. Because she believed that Jesus was good and that he represented the kingdom of God that was good and was for her good. And the two blind men that we read about, uh, at the beginning, they follow Jesus. and They say, have mercy on me, son of David. And Jesus doesn't answer them at first. It's kind of weird. We'll talk about it. He goes into the house, and then he asks them, hey, do you believe that I can heal you? And they say, yes, we believe, we trust in you. We have faith in you, and Jesus heals them. So we are to have faith and trust in God as a good God who loves us. And he's made, God is most made, made most clear in Jesus. When you look at Jesus, you see God. When, you want to, when you're reading the rest of the Bible, read it through the lens of Jesus. When, if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. And that's what we're going to do today. But I have a question for you because, transitioning here a little bit, what happens when you're sick for 12 years? What happens when, like this woman, you're sick for 12 years and you're bleeding, which makes you unclean in your culture and your society? It basically isolates you religiously and socially that she was probably, anyone who would touch her during these 12 years would have been ritually and socially unclean. It's very possible that her encounter with Jesus, the touch of Jesus, was the first time she had been touched in 12 years, had experienced human touch. What happens when it says in, in Luke that she spent all of her money on all of the doctors? And all of the wisdom of that day to try to heal her, but it wouldn't happen. Do you think this is the first time she prayed that God would heal her? I don't think so. I think there was probably a lot of prayers over 12 years. God, heal me. God, heal me. God, heal me. I'm dying. The life is literally leaving my body. She was anemic. She was weak. She was isolated. She was unclean. She could have not had a job because of this sickness. How about the blind men? What happens when you're blind? Maybe from birth. And you can't see and you're completely dependent on other people to get around. That's one thing the story doesn't tell. Like how are they following Jesus? I don't know. If there's people, you know, helping them or if they're just running into things or if they know the street well. I don't know. But they're following him and Jesus doesn't respond right away. This is interesting, right? He's he's walking and then and and he goes into the house and they have to follow him. They're exercising faith and trust in Jesus. And he goes in to the house and they follow him. And they said, "Heal us." And they said, "Do you believe I can heal you?" And they said, "Yes." And then they're healed. But do you think they may have lived a long time, possibly all their life in blindness and darkness? What happens when your daughter dies? You do cry, right? And you and you're and you're confused and you're full of doubt. So what I want to talk about is not only that we can trust God as made known in Jesus, but I want to talk about doubt and faith and how how this works. Because can doubt exist with faith? That's a good question to ask. Can doubt and faith coincide? Can they exist together? It's hard, I think, to have a lot of trust or faith in much these days, right? I think there's a lot of reasons to be distrustful and to have a lack of faith in people and in institutions, right? We used to trust politicians, maybe. I don't know if we ever did. But then there was Watergate, right? There, we used to trust the news media, but then there was fake news. I'm not just talking about the stuff that Trump talks about. There's real fake news too. There was times when we trusted in businesses, but then there was Enron, right? There was a time when we trusted in our parents and in marriage, but then there was divorce, There was a time when we trusted in the church and in clergy, but then there were sexual abuse scandals. There's a lot of things in the world and in our experiences that tear down our trust and our ability to have faith in anything. And sometimes the things that happen to us in our life, the circumstances that happen to us and in us, the addictions that we can't get over, the the, the abuses that we experience, or even the things outside of us that we see the way the world is, we see the injustices, we see that people are hungry and starving, there's famine, and we say, how can I trust? How can I have faith? How can I have faith like this woman who reaches out to Jesus confident that she's going to be healed? I don't see it. I don't see God. I don't see him at work in my life. So I think it's hard to have faith when God seems absent from your life. And it's hard to trust Jesus when everyone else around us is disappointing us. And it seems sometimes that Jesus is disappointing us. Sometimes it seems that he's not there. And so how do faith and doubt mix? That's what I want to ask for the rest of this time. And I'm going to borrow a lot from an article I read by Peter Enns. I'm just going to probably straight up plagiarize him. So I'm not now, and I'm no longer plagiarizing him now because I've just given him credit, right? So, but he wrote an article that I came across as I was just wrestling with this. And I think he says a lot of wonderful things. And so he argues that doubt is not the enemy Doubt is not the enemy, but is a gift of God to move us from trusting ourselves to trusting Jesus. So that might be new, right? That might be a new thought. Is doubt an enemy or a friend? He argues that doubt is a friend that moves us away from trusting ourselves and further into trusting who Jesus is. Doubt feels like God is far away or absent, but... It's actually a thing that he calls disguised closeness, disguised closeness, that we are close to God when we don't see him. Yes. Thank you, Mary Sue. And so when God is close to us, but we don't see him, he actually tends to move us into spiritual maturity. So when we're experiencing doubt, it's actually an opportunity to begin to mature in our faith. Um, so, what if doubt is not a sign of weakness, but it's a sign of growth? If you, it's interesting if you look at Matthew twenty-eight, at the end of Matthew twenty-eight, when Jesus gives the great commission. Right before that, I left my Bible. Right before that, what does this is amazing? The disciples come to him on the hill. All right, they are meeting at the predetermined place. And Jesus has just performed all these miracles. He's done all these amazing things. And he's risen from the dead, right? And he's done even miracles beyond that, post-resurrection miracles, all these things. And it says, the disciples gathered before Jesus. And it says this amazing thing. It said, all worshipped, some doubted. Have you ever noticed that? All of them worshipped Jesus, this resurrected king that we just sang about, but some doubted. Can doubt coexist with faith? Can doubt coexist with worship? It seems like perhaps it can, that doubt can coexist. So what's going on here? Um, I feel, I want to say that, I want to propose that we don't have to run from doubt. I don't think we necessarily have to try and fix it. Uh, I think we need to pass through it patiently and honestly, and courageously. When you're in doubt, you are in a period of transformation. And so it's an opportunity to welcome it as a gift, which is very hard to do when the world around you is falling apart, right? When when you've lost someone very close to you, or when you're not being healed, when you're sick and bleeding for twelve years, or when your daughter has died, or when you are blind for your whole life, how do you maintain? How do you welcome that circumstance and that trial in your life? So here's what uh, Peter says: When you are in doubt, you are in a period of transformation. Welcome it as a gift. And he says, he, God means to have all of you, not just the surface, going to church and daily devotions part. He wants everything, not just the part people see, but the part pe- that no one sees, not even the things that you don't see. See, God wants all of you, even your doubts, even your insecurities, even the things that you have a hard time trusting him with. Lawrence, you have a comment? And I agree with that, Lawrence. But I think there's times where that's just not the case. (laughs) Like, it's really, I mean, in our weakness, ideally, Jesus is our rock and we know it. But sometimes we don't. Sometimes we doubt. And what we want to talk about is, like, how can we use that doubt to bring greater faith, the kind of faith you're talking about. So let's talk about it, and let me let me wrap. Let's let's figure this out together, all right? And I want to hear more. See if you come back around. All right. So there's there's this thing in Christian tradition. Uh, Saint John of the Cross, the guy he was around in the 1500 16th century, 1500s, if I get that right. Saint John of the Cross, and he had this thing called he he experienced this thing what he called the dark night of the soul. Has anyone heard of the dark night of the soul? I first heard about it in college. I read about it in college. And uh, the dark night is a sense of painful alienation and distance from God that causes distress, anxiety, discouragement, despair, and depression. All right? Real fun times. Um, and all Christians experience this at one time or, the, uh, in, or, or another. And this is something that we don't readily acknowledge, I don't think, that we want to talk about the fact that, yeah, God is good. God is good. God is good. He's, all the time he's good, And what that, it, which is very true, and I'm not saying it's not. But our circumstances are often very painful, and they cause despair and doubt and depression, and we're suffering and we're just dying on the inside. And when we come to church or we come into public, we're expected to smile as we eat a donut and say, God is good. And God is good, but life isn't always good. And life is hard, and there's anxiety, and there's conflict in us. And so the dark night of the soul is not pretty, but here's St. John's great insight. He says the dark night is a special sign of God's presence, that when we're experiencing this sense of abandonment and absence of God, it's actually a sign of God's presence, of his nearness. And this is what St. John of the Cross says, our false God, when in these dark nights of the soul, our false God is being stripped away and we are left empty before God with none of the familiar ideas of God that we create to prop us up. The dark night takes away the background noise we have created in our lives in order to prepare us to hear God's voice later on. So when the dark night comes upon us, we're asked simply to surrender to God and trust him anyways. Even though we're blind and we've been that way forever, and we don't know why, God is inviting us. Trust me. Trust me. Don't ignore your circumstances. Don't ignore your blindness. Trust me. Even though our daughter has just died, trust me. Even though you've been bleeding for 12 years and nothing has changed and you are poor and destitute, trust me. But what's happening in that trial, what's happening is, those, is that very, everything that you trust in is being stripped away. And even your conceptions of who you think God is, a vending machine that you put in a prayer and you get something out, or um, whatever your conception of God may be, it's being refined by that trial and refined by what's happening in your life, and you have the opportunity to get a clearer picture of who God is and who the God that you are invited to trust is, right? And so, it's like this. Did you ever? Do you remember um, a few years ago in Chile, 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 the country in South America, Chile? Is that right? Chile. All right. Um, they were miners, and they were they were trapped in a Chilean mine, and they were in absolute darkness. They were alone in this deep, dark cave, miles down, with absolutely no single ray of light. It's utterly pitch black, and they have no idea who, who, you know, where they are, and they have no idea how they're going to get out, right? Air is literally leaving the place. They're running out of air. It would just be a terrifying thing. All you know, all they know is that they are helpless, and at first, I'm sure they're trying to like grope and find their way and try to figure it out, right, out, out, of, out of this cave. You start walking slowly, and then you realize that wherever you are, it is big, and it's dark, it's flat, and you can't do anything about it. You can't escape. You are totally out of control is what you start to realize. You're out of control. You can't do anything. And this point of the dark night is to take away your sense of having control. Right. Does that make sense? So it's at the point where you realize you are not in control, that you can, you've actually been cleared of all this false hopes and all of the, trust that we, the things that we put our trust in, and we realize all we have is God who is with us, won't leave us, nor will forsake us. That's all we have. So I'm going to end with this story, um, and then we can talk about it a little bit, there was a Jesuit philosopher named John Kavanaugh, and in the 70s, he went to visit Mother Teresa. Everyone know who Mother Teresa is? I realize like, she, she died in 1997. If you don't know who Mother Teresa is, she was a woman that gave her life to serving the poorest of the poor of the poor and the poorest of the poorest of countries and the poorest of the poorest part of that country. He worked with, She worked with those who were dying, And they would be left on the street to die, and she would be the one that would just hold them as they died. That's who Mother Teresa was. She actually comes to find out later that she struggled with doubt, this deep crippling doubt, her whole, almost her whole time. And people were really upset by that, because how could a woman of such great faith have so much doubt? In 1975, this man, John Kavanaugh, went to work for three months at the House of the Dying in Calcutta with Mother Teresa. And he was searching for an answer about how best to spend the remaining years of his life. So he's kind of coming at this crossroads in his life. And he was looking for discernment. And he met Mother Teresa. And she asked him, what can I do for you? And Kavanaugh asked her to pray for him. And she said, what do you want me to pray for you? She asked, and, and he answered with a, requ- with a request that was um, the reason he had traveled thousands of miles to India. He says, Pray that I would have clarity. And Mother Teresa said firmly, No, I will not do that. When he asked her why, she said, Clarity is the last thing you are clinging to and must let go of. Can I say that again? Clarity is the last thing you're clinging to the last idol in your life and it's a thing you got to let go of. When Kavanaugh said you always you always seem to have clarity she laughed and said I have never had clarity. What I have always had is trust. Summer there's that word. She's always had trust. So I will pray that you trust God. So the point of the dark, helpless place in our lives is to strip us of absolutely everything so that only surrender and trust remain. And this is, I think, the daily calling of the Christian. The daily calling of the follower of Jesus is to say, look, I'm going to trust in the God who is most clearly revealed in Jesus And no matter what's happening, I trust that he is on the move, that he is making all wrong things right, that he is mending what is wrong in the world, and that where he is taking the world is where I need to be. And I'm going to join up with that project no matter what. And so just in the very last thing I'll say is this. I think as a community, I want to be a place where doubt is permitted. And I want to be a place where we can say, I'm not sure about this thing. I'm not sure where God is. I'm not sure that I'm feeling like the resurrecting king is resurrecting me, right? I'm confused. And my life is hard. I don't know why this is happening. And I think as a community, we need to, if we're going to be that way, we we need to kind of exercise or kind of keep in mind three things. We need to give one another three things, all right? One is time. I think we need to give time uh, for people to experience doubt and to experience pain experience struggle. We're uncomfortable with pain, right? I know when we went through our miscarriage several years ago, um, it made people, our grief makes people uncomfortable. And we don't know how to sit with grief. And we've talked about sitting on the morning bench with people. You don't have to say anything, just grieve with them. And so I think sometimes we just need to allow space, give time, and say, hey, I don't have to have the answers, but I can sit with you. In this pain, and I can allow time to to work, the Holy Spirit to work in time. So we need to give each other time, we need to be patient. It's interesting, the, the root word of patience in Latin is suffer. Patior is to suffer. So to have patience is to actually it's suffer it's suffer it hurts to wait and to be there. So we need time. The second thing we need is grace. We need a lot of grace in times of suffering, in times of doubt, in times of struggle, in times of pain, in times of blindness, in times of sickness. We need grace. We need to extend grace to one another. We need patience for one another. We need to bear one another's burdens. And we need to also remember the grace of God, right? The grace of God that never ends, that he's giving us what we need, that we need to give one another what we need. We need to have grace and patience and forgiveness for one another. Because people who are in pain often hurt others, right? People in pain often cause pain. So we need a lot of grace for one another. Because in our pain, it's like a wounded lion. You need to, like, stitch, stitch him up. But that lion is very dangerous because you try to touch that wound, he's going to slap your face off. So we need time and we need grace. And the last thing is we need vision. We need vision. And what I mean by this is we need to point each other to who Jesus is, who God is revealed in Jesus, and what the world is that he is creating and making new by his resurrection. We need to point each other to Jesus who heals the woman with the issue of blood. Not to diminish your 12 years of suffering, but to say there is an end. And God is good and he's inclined to us. We need to remember that the good world that Jesus is creating and making all wrong things right, all things new. Reversing the curse of sin and death. Restoring the broken places. We need to remind ourselves. So in dark times, in the pit, we need vision. We need vision that this isn't always going to be our story. It is now, but it's not forever. We need grace, and we need time. Okay, I want to invite, uh, who's coming up? All right, come on up. This is Mike. They're new, but they just jumped right in, and I put them right on the spot here. But they have a story of kind of God's working um, in the midst of a storm. So here you go.
1: All right, it's a lot, and uh, so great to meet you all. Um, Yeah, I'm totally changing everything I was going to say, um, because God is good and, uh, life is not good. Um, but God, but life in God is good. And, um, this story brings up a lot of emotions for us because there was a daughter who did not get up out of bed and there was a woman who was bleeding and was healed. And, uh, the daughter's name was Anna Charlotte. And, uh, she passed away about three months ago or so, and uh, ever since that time, Rachel had been bleeding um, since then, and um, pretty much right after she passed away, we moved here, and so it's kind of a weird weird time, weird place, and then going through that medical thing as well, um, but uh, you know, um, I forget, what's the scripture that um, says you're supposed to go to your elders and james it's in james james five um when you're sick you're supposed to go to your elders and, and have them pray for you and, and have them anoint you with oil and so um when we found this church um we asked uh, jesse to pray like, hey we're going through this and um will you pray with us and uh the next day you know i asked rachel how you feeling you good and, and god healed her in a in a huge way and um you know, there is some of that doubting at first because you kind of like, well, let's just sit on this for a minute. Let's make sure God really did come through like, like we prayed he would, you know. And, it, and it's kind of shocking, too, when he does come through in that big way. And so, um, yeah, I just want to share that, that little piece of joy. I mean, it was just a huge, amazing blessing. So, thanks. Thanks, Dan.